Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It is Sunday, June 4th, 2023. As always, very sadly, the media is full of stories of police shootings, of unarmed and often innocent people. This time it's of an 11-year-old boy in Indianola uh, in Mississippi. Uh, of course, both mother and father are demanding answers. Uh, the boy has spoken to the media. It's quite inexplicable, of course. Um, and he is just in a long line, this boy, this 11-year-old, Adirian Murray, is just in a long line of police shootings of unarmed people. We lose their names. We forget there are so many, mostly African-American, of course. One of whom is uh, a man who some of you will be familiar with, a man called Henry Glover, who was shot to death by New Orleans Police Department just after... Um, just after... Um, the uh in 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 september 2005 just after um the flooding uh in uh in uh, in new orleans um and uh this man just another figure in the newspaper a man with grieving mother a burnt out car uh when the story of uh the sh death of um of this man was uh, put on the desk of a young, at that time, young civil rights uh, lawyer at the Justice Department, a man called Jared Fishman. Um, his antenna were raised, and he came to New Orleans to investigate. Much of the narrative in this is covered in Jared Fishman's new book, Fire on the Levee, the murder of Henry Glover and the search for justice after Hurricane Katrina. Uh Jared Fishman is joining us from Washington, D.C. to talk about the new book. Uh, Jared, why is this an important story? It obviously is an important story in, in, in your career. It shaped your career politically and legally. But, but what's the big deal about it since there are so many tragic stories of police shootings and killings of unarmed civilians? Like you said, far too many people are killed in confrontations with the police every year. Uh, at least a thousand people have been killed in confrontations in the U.S. Uh, with police uh, per year uh, for the last number of years. Uh, this particular case was a case that was assigned to me as a young civil rights prosecutor at the Department of Justice uh, in 2009. For me, this case is significant not only because Henry Glover was killed by the police, he was also burned by the police afterwards. His, his body, his remains were burned in a car. Uh, and for many, many years, this was covered up by the police department. I got the case about three and a half years after her, uh, after Henry Glover was killed. And at the time, uh, we didn't even know that the police had shot Henry Glover, but there was enough suspicion that it was worth looking into. Uh, I spent 14 years at the Justice Department investigating police misconduct, hate crimes, and human trafficking. But of all the police cases I ever did, this one stands out, not only because of its egregiousness, uh, but also because it's representative of exactly why these things are happening and just how hard it is to hold people accountable for it. So remind us, Jared, of September 2005, post-Katrina New Orleans, what was happening 
it was presented at least by much of the media as a kind of anarchy there. Uh, but but in your view, what was life like in in, in the New Orleans of post Katrina, uh, which was in which uh, Henry Glover was murdered by the police? Well, when Hurricane Katrina hit, um, it wasn't so much the natural disaster that uh, disrupted New Orleans as much as that when the hurricane hit, it caused the protective levees that surround New Orleans to break. And very quickly, the city began to flood. About 80% of New Orleans wound up underwater. Now, that wasn't the case in the part of New Orleans where Henry Glover was. But as uh, the city began to flood, uh, rescue services were overwhelmed. The police were overwhelmed. Federal resources didn't come in to assist for, for close to a week. And, and so people who had remained in New Orleans, who had thought that like the many other storms before them, this one would pass, uh, things would return to normal, uh, it quickly became clear within a few days that that wasn't the case because electricity was cut off, water was cut off, people could not move. Um, over time, uh, at, at that period, there were essentially two types of people left, the police and, and the mostly low-income, predominantly black citizens who had remained. And as the days, uh, as the days ed edged on and help didn't come, there was an incredible tension between the police, between the community. Um, and yes, there was chaos. Uh, we saw 30 to 40,000 people who wound up in the Superdome uh, as, as a, this as was, of course, avenue. under um, the second George Bush presidency in which he didn't come out of it looking particularly distinguished. No, I mean, the federal response was atrocious, that it took so long to get resources in to help New Orleans. Uh, and so as, as people were stranded, people didn't have ways out. There weren't great transportation. Uh, there was increasing tension. Uh, we also saw mass amounts of looting. We saw police departments responding with lethal force uh, in, in unusual amounts. And, and this was one of those scenarios where a police officer shot an unarmed man with a sniper rifle in these, in these tense days after Hurricane Katrina. So tell us a little bit about um, Henry Glover. Was there anything unusual about him? Um, how old was he? What, what did he do before his death? Henry Glover was a 31-year-old black man who lived in Algiers. He had kids. He had a family. He had a, parent, a mother who loved him, siblings who loved him. He worked two jobs. Uh, he was a lower-income man living in New Orleans in this time. And, and like many people in his situation, uh, made that calculus in the early days. Do I leave? Do I stay? And uh, he wanted to stay and protect his home and his family. Uh, but four days after the storm, he had realized that was no longer possible. It was time for them all to gather up and to leave. And then? And then that morning, he went to find uh, transportation. He ended up taking a Firestone truck from a nearby store in order to get his family out of town. Taking, uh, so you mean looting? Borrow he took it. a truck that did not belong to him. You can call it whatever you want. But uh, the Firestone people afterwards certainly said they wish he hadn't been shot for it. Um, he was trying to get out of the town like everyone else. And uh, ultimately, he had been asked to go uh, get some items that had been looted by some, some family members. He hadn't realized that the reason it had been left behind is that they had been run off by the police. And when he showed up in that parking lot, he was greeted by a 40-year-old rookie officer with a sniper rifle who uh, shot first and asked questions later. 
Henry was shot in the back as he was running away and um, ultimately uh, died as a result of that. So he was shot in cold blood running away from a policeman. Yeah, at the time uh, that he was shot, he was at least 60 feet away from the officers. Uh, at this particular strip mall, it's a two-level strip mall. The officers were on the second floor. Henry was on the first floor. He was separated from the officers by chain-locked gates. When the officer told him to leave, he began to run. And then that officer, who was using his own personally owned sniper rifle, shot him in the back as he was running away. So how did the New Orleans Police Department present the death of Henry Glover? They didn't. Uh, the report that was written of this weapons discharge didn't happen for three months after the storm. And then the officer had claimed that he had fired his weapon, but believed he missed. So that was that was the reporting. Uh, meanwhile, of, I mean, we, we talked at the beginning about the response of Adrian Murray's family. What was Glover's family doing? I mean, did they know he was dead? I assume they did. Well, he had been with his, his friend, his his uh, sister's uh, husband, and immediately after he was shot, they went seeking help. Uh, at the time, Henry was still alive. He was in bad shape. He had taken a shot to center mass, but was still alive. His brother and his brother-in-law sought help. They flagged down a good Samaritan named William Tanner, who picked him up um, and drove him to try to go get help. The nearest hospital was quite far away, about 15 minutes away in Jefferson Parish. And so the driver brought him to a nearby elementary school where a few days prior he had seen what he believed were medical supplies. This particular elementary school had been taken over by members of uh, New Orleans Special Operations Division. And he thought that they could go and get medical treatment there. When Henry Glover arrived with the three gentlemen who were trying to get him help, instead the officers took the three men out of the cars, beat them, put them in handcuffs. Henry Glover was left to die in the car. Uh, within about two hours, one of the officers had driven off with Henry Glover's body in that car. And ultimately, we learned, took him behind a levee where his body in the car was burnt. So how... Four years later, did this case show up on, on your desk as a, as a young uh, investigator at the Justice Department in Washington, D.C.? An investigative journalist named A.C. Thompson, who at the time was working for ProPublica, uh, wrote an article that was in The Nation suggesting what little was known uh, about Henry's last day uh, from the vantage point of two of the people who had tried to get him help, William Tanner and, and Henry's brother, Edward King. And the story that was, was written about was that they had gone seeking help, they were beaten, and a police officer drove off with a car. All that was known at that time was that that car was later found burned behind the levee. There was a suggestion that the police may have been involved, um, but at that time it was really unclear. I worked well, as a part it points of the to the, and we've done many shows on this, the value of independent journalism, because without the journalist at the nation, this would never have shown up on your desk. Oh, for sure. Uh, and this particular investigative journalist, A.C. Thompson, uh, was responsible for breaking many cases that are many stories that ultimately helped me and, and my office uh, in prosecuting cases, cases that we never would have known about had it not been for that investigative How, how uh, unusual was the death of Henry Glover in New Orleans in the, in the chaos, in the anarchy after Katrina? Were uh, others? shot dead by by the police 
multiple people were shot dead. There was a point where I believe the FBI had at least nine different investigations open, most of that stemming from the aftermath of Hurricane Katrina. There was a shooting at the convention center where a man named Danny Brumfeld was shot by the police. There were two civilians who were killed by the police on the Danziger Bridge. Uh, There were others that took place uh, in the French Quarter. Multiple cases that, that came up afterwards, not all of them were prosecuted. Um, and very few of them surfaced until many years later, sometimes uh, only because of the work of investigative journalists. New Orleans, of course, is historically um, a violent place, uh, both uh, in terms of the level of, of crime. Is that, I mean, that's the, the common assumption, um, Jared. Is that fair, do you think, pre and post Katrina? Well, in the in the 90s, New Orleans was the murder capital of America with the highest per capita homicide rate. Uh, things had gotten better over the years, though it's now ticking back up again and pretty close. I think in 2022 is probably number two in the country. So certainly a lot of a lot of violence in that city. The police department similarly is known as one of the most abusive or historically one of the most abusive and corrupt in the country. In the 90s alone, they had four separate cases of police officers accused of murder. They had two police officers who were on death row, one for executing a civilian who had made a civil rights complaint against him, and one on death row for executing her own partner. Um, so the <laughs> There's there's a long history of, of, of violence. I mean, looking at the headlines today for the New Orleans Dep- uh, Police Department, the NOPD, lots of officer resignations, low morale. And as as you said, still the, one of the murder capitals that to, I think yesterday it passed the 100 murder mark. So it's 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 uh, it's, it's a sad story. So let, let's let's pursue let's continue your story so this case shows up on your desk then what you fly down to new orleans yeah so i was based out of washington dc and the way these cases often work is as a civil rights prosecutor based out of washington dc i'll be teamed up with a local fbi agent and local u.s attorney's office um, attorneys i was teamed up with a rookie fbi agent named ashley johnson who was based in new orleans Uh, she had also been assigned the case and together we began trying to figure out whether or not there was anything to the insinuations that uh, the police Jared, had been involved. Jared, let me ask you this. Uh, you, you, you said you were a civil rights prosecutor. What is, is that associated with, we, we often associate the term civil rights with race. Is that what it means or is it a broader meaning? It's a broader meaning. We, we investigated three types of civil rights violations, the first being hate crimes. That doesn't inherently have to be a race-based hate crime, but uh, when anyone is targeted because of their race or their national origin or their religion, uh, either through violence or through other means, um, it can violate federal civil rights statutes. We also investigated human trafficking that included both sex trafficking as well as forced labor. And then the biggest umbrella cases that we investigated are called color of law. Those are cases where people are empowered by the law to um, to enforce the law. That can be police officers, it can be corrections officers, it can be judges, and who knowingly violate the civil rights 
of those people. So race is not an element to any of those cases. In fact, I had a number of cases um, where the police used excessive force or some other constitutional violation where race wasn't a factor at all. How, how, how long out of law school were you, Jared? Uh, I started working there about two years out of law school. And where did you go to law school? I went to the George Washington University Law School in DC. Which is one of the top law schools in the country. So presumably you you could have chosen to have had a career as a as a in, in a private firm. You you chose this, I assume, because you were troubled by these sorts of stories. Is that fair? Uh, that's the short version, I guess. I mean, when I went to law, well, give school, me a slightly no longer one. <laughs> when I went to law school, I had no intention of being a real lawyer. Uh, I had spent my pre-law school days working in, in in places that had experienced conflict and war. I spent time in the Middle East. I spent time in Bosnia Herzegovina. I spent time in Rwanda. I spent time in Kosovo. I was really interested in places that had been destroyed by war and what it would take to rebuild after that. Yeah. Um, and and my first job out of law school was working for the U.S. State Department in Kosovo, where I was working with police and prosecutors to rebuild their court system. But during the course of doing that work, I had a colleague who said, listen, if you want to work on these structural issues, if you want to work on these systemic issues, you need to go work in the system and you should go be a prosecutor. Now, for me, that was something I'd never even thought about. The idea of doing a job where the end game was ultimately to send people to prison was not something I really cared about. I was a civil rights guy. I cared about that. But my colleague said to me, if you really care about civil rights, you need to go be a prosecutor because they're the ones with all the power. And I took that to heart and I had an opportunity to do a rotation. I worked in, in D.C. Superior Court where I handled domestic violence and sex crimes cases. And that was really when I began to see and appreciate the racial disparities within the criminal legal system. Uh, it was hard not to recognize that every person in our system was, was predominantly black or brown. Uh, it was hard not to recognize that many of those people were there because of low level enforcement. And as much as I enjoyed doing the job, I enjoyed investigating, I enjoyed being in court, uh, those weren't the types of cases I wanted to do if I was going to use that power. And so I was able um, to get a job at the Civil Rights Division where my job was to enforce civil rights law and to, in, in many ways, go after people who abuse their power against some of the most marginalized communities in America. The subtitle of the book, Fire on the Levy, is The Murder of Henry Glover and the Search for Justice After Hurricane Katrina. Uh, I, it's a serious nonfiction book. It's not a novel, so uh, I, I'm not so worried about you giving away the ending. It, it, in broad terms, how successful was this search for justice? Did the system work or does the system work, at least in this case? Well, I don't want to ruin that for, for the readers, but I think it is complicated. I think a lot of times when we think about justice, we tend to look wholly at the criminal legal system. And if that is the standard that one uses for justice, whether or not the accountable parties go to prison and for how long, then, then surely our prosecution um, did, not, uh, did not succeed. However, if one thinks of justice more broadly about uh, as a forward-looking motion and, and beginning to change some of the systems and structures. This case, along with the prosecutions of other police officers for the shootings on the Danziger Bridge, for another case that I investigated, the murder of a man named Raymond Robert, um, shed a light 
on what was happening in this community, how the police were acting, and it did bring about some serious structural changes to the police department. The New Orleans Police Department is undoubtedly a better police department today than it was when I started working there in 2009. Uh, in the aftermath of the prosecutions and in these investigations, there was wholesale reform, one of the biggest reforms of its police department ever to take place in America. We saw countless officers who were who were truly bad, bad police officers lose their jobs. We saw major systemic changes happening. Is New Orleans as good as it could be? Absolutely not. Um, the reforms that we saw helped bring New Orleans up to, to the bare minimum of acceptable policing, and there's a lot more work to be done. But when you look back to the police department that I found in 2009, certainly there's been a lot of positive change. Is that sufficient for justice for Henry Glover? I don't think so. But what what I think is, is that um, it certainly helped make things better, but we still have a long way to go. When you went down, I'm guessing, uh, Jared, that you found policemen and women within the NOPD who were very hostile and some who were sympathetic. Is that fair? Were there those who treated you as an enemy and others who were willing to, who, who, who wanted you to help reform the, the department? Uh, we found a lot more who saw us as the enemy. Um, but in order to make a police case, you need police officers on the inside who come forward with information. And we had plenty of those. Our case, in fact, was built around police officers uh, who testified often at great personal risk, professional risk, in order to expose the crimes of their colleagues. That being said, we had many, many, many more who lied to us, who looked the other way, who obstructed. A lot of times we would be faced with this question of, were you here during Katrina? If you weren't, you can't possibly understand this idea that as outsiders, we were coming in uh, and had no place in judging them for their conduct. So we met plenty, um, plenty of resistance. And, and the FBI at some point during our investigation was concerned that perhaps there was a risk to my own personal safety and assigned me to have a personal bodyguard. Did you get so threats? Were, Are there threats against you? There were there were general threats. There was a lot. Um, there were threats against other people. My colleague at one point had uh, who, who lived in New Orleans. Her her alarm went off, and she came home to find the NOPD inside her house. There were death threats against uh, defense lawyers. Many of the witnesses believed they were being followed. Uh, and so while I personally didn't receive a very explicit threat, um, there was concerns at, you know, at throughout most of the investigation that, that perhaps my own safety was at, was at risk. Jared, you note that most of the victims of these sorts of crimes were black and brown. What about the diversity within the NOPD? Were there a lot of black and brown policemen or was it primarily a white police force? Um, yeah, there are plenty um, officers of color within NOPD. Beginning in the wow. 80s and 90s, there was a huge push to diversify um, the department. Uh, the main defendants in my case uh, were predominantly white. Uh, um, in the Danziger Bridge case, uh, there was a mixture of white and black um, officers involved. I think a lot of times when people talk about the killing of black people in America, by police, they often make it a black and white issue. And I think that's a mistake. 
what I do think it is is a black and blue issue. And by that, do I what I mean is black people are police different in America. And so while there is a much needed push for diversity in policing, I think police departments should represent the, the communities that they serve. It is not sufficient merely to bring in more um, officers of color. What we see in this case is a number of black officers who saw wrongdoing also lied about it. Um, we're also a part of the cover up. We see the shooters in the Danziger Bridge. Uh, I believe two or three of them were also uh, people of color. And so it is not sufficient merely to diversify a police force. We also need to change many of the structural pressures, the cultural pressures inside policing that cause black people, and in particular black men, to be policed more aggressively, uh, where officers are more willing to shoot first and ask questions later. Let's end on that note. You uh, now run a group called uh, Justice Innovation Lab, I think focusing on a lot of this stuff. Of course, since the murder of Henry Glover, much has happened in America, including Black Lives Matter. We've had many shows on reforming the police force, eliminating the police force. You're intimately familiar with all these debates. What needs to change in your view, um, yeah, what, what needs to change, Jared, in terms of the American police and these kinds of terrible crimes to make sure that we can essentially eliminate them in the future if that's possible? I think we, number one, need to change how we think about public safety. Historically in America, when we think about justice and we think about public safety, we think about incarcerating people and putting them in prison. And that is certainly one tool that is available to us that we do need to use. That being said, we should never confuse justice for punishment. Um, we have a system that is built on punishing people. And when you look at a lot of what's happening in America, much of this stuff stems from things totally, we see a lot of addiction, we see a lot of mental health problems, we see a lot of poverty. Uh, and policing strategy over the last few decades has been to really double down on enforcing low-level crimes, whether that's drug possession, low-level drug dealing, shoplifting. When you look at who is in our jails, 10 million people get arrested in America every year, most of them for things that are rather low-level. Um, and when they go through our system, they come out worse. The American criminal justice system is criminogenic for the most part, meaning that it is more likely to contribute to people continuing to be in the system. And why is that? Because when you get convicted of a felony, that often precludes legal employment. It makes it very difficult for folks to get back out there. We know that 5 million children in America grow up without parents because they're incarcerated. What America needs to do is to think much more holistically about public safety. We need to change the cultures of policing so that we treat our members of our community as members of our community and to begin to put resources into the things that could actually help reduce crime. How, uh, and finally, Jared, how optimistic are you? I'm talking to you from San Francisco. It's not post Katrina. Uh, it's not like New Orleans, I guess, in that sense. Although if you go downtown, it increasingly seems chaotic, like a kind of war zone, which uh, which is inhabited by homeless people, drug addicts, and the police. Uh, as we brace for another round of culture wars, Trump or DeSantis against Biden, how are, optimistic are you that 
any of this is going to change or in an even worse context will america itself become a, a giant version of new orleans after katrina or downtown san francisco people often called me an optimist because i believe that things can change i don't consider myself an optimist because optimism means that things will change i think things can change but in order for things to change that requires building a coalition of people who are willing to do the hard work now, we're doing work in a number of jurisdictions across the country, and there is so much low-hanging fruit that if people were dedicated to trying to prevent those things, we could reduce an inordinate amount of harm in our communities. But it's still really hard. It's really hard because it takes mobilizing coalitions. It takes people coming together and saying, we can do better. Now, I am optimistic in the sense that I've traveled around the country in Republican districts and Democratic districts all over the United States, and I've met plenty of those people. There are a lot of people inside the system, inside policing, inside prosecution, inside the courts, inside those communities that say, we have to do better. Now, whether or not those people succeed, that depends how many resources we collectively give them and how creative we want to be. What scares me a lot about what, you know, one of the things we often talk about the criminal justice system in America as if it was a singular thing. It is not. We have 2,300 criminal justice systems in America. They mostly operate at the county level or at the city level, and they're almost always controlled by people in local politics. District attorneys are elected. Judges are elected. Polices are appointed by mayors. And so each of these 2,300 jurisdictions has a choice. Do they want to do things different? What we do at Justice Innovation Lab is we work with the people who are committed to doing something different. And what we've seen is, is when people come together in a thoughtful way and they really get to the bottom of why are we even doing this in the first place? Why do we even have this system? Well, we want to contribute to public safety, but we want to do it in a fair and just way. And when you begin to wrap your head around that and begin to say, all right, well, how do we count the things that matter? How do we begin to ensure that as, as law enforcement, as, as public servants, we begin to do better? We can do better. There's no doubt in my mind that we can begin to fix some of these problems. The real question is, is there enough political will and community support to actually do the hard work to make it happen?